Happy Thursday, everybody, and welcome to episode 40, 40 of the Snyder Cut. I am your handsome host, Jeff Snyder, senior film reporter at Collider.com, and I've missed you guys. I've been off Twitter for the week. I'm sure you've noticed. I'm sure you just miss me so much. It's been uh, it's been tough. I've definitely, you know, like gone to Twitter to tweet things and then been like, ah, you're not on this service anymore. Take a chill pill. Um, so, I, you know, I wanted to mention this up top just to remind you guys, still send me the mailbag questions. You can DM me. You can reply to that tweet that's pinned at the top of the profile. You can email me, jeff at collider.com. But I'd still love mailbag questions. I just don't want to have to go on Twitter and say, hey, guys, mailbag time. Um, so remember, Thursdays, email me. I will try to get to your question at the end of the podcast. Where are we going to start this week? What should we do? Um, let's start with the big casting news, which was Jude Law. Jude Law cast as Captain Hook in Disney's live-action Peter Pan. This one's going to be from David Lowry, who did Pete's Dragon, which I really liked. Um, and this is the role that was offered to Will Smith at one point. Jude Law, you just, you can't keep him away, uh, f- from some of these big movies. Like, he's just, he's, he's in so much stuff. Um, maybe, maybe he just felt like Fantastic Beasts. Who knows what the hell is going to happen with Fantastic Beasts. Um, but Jude Law's Captain Hook, I like it. I think he's got the right... I don't know, he, he, he can seem like a prick if he wants to, you know, Jude Law? Like, um, I, I would have liked to have seen something just different happen with Captain Hook. You know, like, I, I like the idea of a black Captain Hook with Will Smith. Um, it's weird that Jude Law and Will Smith are being offered the same parts, or that, or that they're going to Jude Law right after Will Smith, because uh, I, I didn't hear anybody else sort of in between. Um, but, but, uh, you know, Jude Law, he's a great actor. You know, I don't know that he like puts butts in seats, but it's a Disney live action movie. So, you know, the, the brand is kind of, you're going to, you're going to come see this movie no matter what, because it's a Disney movie, right? The stars are kind of like eh, incidental. Um, so yeah, I, I, I like Jude Law as Captain Hook. And you know what I like even more? Brad Pitt as the lead in David Leach's Bullet Train. We talked about this project a couple weeks ago. Uh, it sounds like he's going to be playing a hitman named Ladybug. This is like, I'm, it's cool to see Brad Pitt getting back to this kind of stuff, uh, making big mainstream commercial movies. Like this guy's a movie star. He's one of our great movie stars. And yet, you know, he, he doesn't always go for, for the easy one. Like, like, like I think bullet train kind of is. Um, the idea of him working with David Leach is exciting. David Leach is one of the best action directors. I haven't loved the movies that he's made, whether it's, you know, Atomic Blonde or Hobbs and Shaw, but the guy can, can shoot action. So you, if you have Brad Pitt, knowing his taste in material and what he can bring to a role, I don't know, that, that sounds like a, it could be a, a very exciting match. Although I'm still waiting for David Leach to get uh, the division off the ground, right? With Jake Gyllenhaal and J- Jessica Chastain. Like, I feel like, we keep hearing about that. It gets so close to going, and then, I don't know, they pull back. Maybe it's just the pandemic. I, I don't know. Um, God, there's just, like, a bunch of, like, little things. Because it was a short week, right? Like, I felt like Monday was very slow. Tuesday was su- uh, super busy. Last Friday, uh, July 3rd, everybody was off. 
you know, with the with the Fourth of July holiday. So there isn't that as much stuff to talk about. There's but there's still plenty. There's still plenty. This was an interesting one. Zendaya and John David Washington shot a movie during the pandemic. It's called Malcolm and Marie. It's a it's sort of like marriage story. They went off to this fancy you know, Caterpillar house in, in California or, you know, s- somewhere uh, near, relatively nearby to shoot under, under the direction of uh, Euphoria's Sam Levinson. I mean, I don't even know how, like, so, how you can get away with this in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, they're saying everybody's quarantined and stuff like that. I'm just surprised that they actually got the guilds to sign off because, you know, there was the whole kerfuffle this week with Songbird, the, the Michael Bay, Adam Goodman production where, you know, it was initially reported that the guilds had all signed off. And then SAG After issues a do not work order to its actors. And then a day later, you know, they say, okay, it, it, it's fine. And we get more casting news, like Bradley Whitford. And it's just, um, I mean, it sounds like in that case, it wasn't a safety issue. It was more of a money issue. But I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, and I wonder how many of these things we're going to sort of hear about. Uh, productions that did film quietly under the radar again i don't know what the guilds actually say about this stuff it sounds like i mean in deadline in deadlines report that they had the whole safety plan and it seemed very comprehensive and and again if you're only making a a movie with with two actors maybe there's a third or a fourth and and a relatively small crew i don't see why it couldn't work given the proper quarantines we certainly haven't heard that any of these people have uh tested, tested positive for covid um as far as the actual movie itself, you know, I don't know too many plot details about it. Do I like the two of them together in in a movie, you know, exploring the the, mar- the marriage of a, of a young black couple? Yeah, I like that. That that's the kind of stuff that I don't think that we really get. That's a a white people movie, if you will, and so it's refreshing to see a, a story like that being told with two uh, you know up and coming really talented black leads. Um, and I like I like Sam Levinson. You know, I, I liked uh, was, I liked his first feature, right? The one that it was the family movie. Forgetting what the fucking name of it was, and then um, you know, Assassination Nation was okay. It it didn't. I don't know if it merited its gigantic sale price, but uh, you know, it showed some promise. And then I think he put it all together with Euphoria, which is you know one of the best shows on HBO. Um, so yeah, definitely looking forward to to what that trio concocts. Uh, Tiffany Haddish signing on to Homecoming Queen. This is an Amblin comedy about her trip to Africa and where she thought she was, she thought she went to, she traveled to Africa under the pretense that she was royalty only to discover that being royalty in Africa means something completely different than it does here. I don't actually know what it means. It didn't really elaborate, but I can just see Tiffany Haddish like telling this story. She probably went into like meet on some other movie at Amblin and she's like, Oh yeah, I just, you know, I, t- I took this trip to Africa and it was so funny and this and this and Holly Bear. I can just picture Holly Bear in the room being like, you know what? That could be a movie right there. And so that's what they're doing. Um, Tiffany Haddish goes to Africa. Yeah. I, I, I suppose that could work. I really like her. I, I like, you know, the, the big stuff, uh, like, like girls trip. And I like when Tiffany Haddish sort of reins it in a bit, um, as she did in the kitchen, even though that movie wasn't great. I thought she was good. And she's got some interesting movies on the horizon. She's got that Paul Schrader movie coming out, the card counter. Like she's, I think she's trying to brand herself in a way that isn't just like, 
I'm the black female Zach Galifianakis or something like that. Uh, and yeah, so you know, th- this could be a step in the right direction. Hopefully they, they get a black filmmaker uh, to do it. Um, I think the, the writer on that is Ramla Mohammed, who I think wrote on Scandal, if I'm remembering my own report accurately. I don't have all these things up in front of me. I kind of just, you know, write, write out the headline and then just talk about the story from memory. Um, Dylan O'Brien, this was, this was a big one this week. Dylan O'Brien landed the lead in Peter Farrelly's Vietnam movie, The Greatest Beer Run Ever. And I like this. I like this for him. I like this for them. Like Dylan O'Brien, I don't know that he's put it all together yet. He's still a young guy. I mean, he, you know, he did uh, the Maze Runner movies. He's had a couple of other things here and there, uh, a role in, in Peter Berg's Deepwater Horizon. But uh, I, I feel like the movie Infinite from Antoine Fuqua with Mark Wahlberg, I feel like that, if that is good, you know, could go either way. But, you know, Wahlberg, Fuqua, that's promising. That could bump him up a bit. That, that, that could be like, I don't know, the Miles Teller and Top Gun 2 kind of role. Uh, not as big a property, obviously, because it's not Brandon IP, really. But um, it, it, it was a nice, like, like, like that project could unlock a few things for him, as it seems that it did with this greatest beer run ever. Uh, so he's going to be playing Chick Donahue, who is this guy in New York, and all his buddies are fighting in the Army overseas in Vietnam. And he's like, oh, I just want to see my buddies again. You know, so I bet they're dying for a beer out there in those jungles. And he makes a beer run, the greatest beer run ever, if you will, from New York to Vietnam just to have a few drinks with his pals. Don't know who Vigo's playing. Vigo Mortensen's going to co-star in this movie. I don't know if he's playing, you know, the the uh, sergeant of the soldiers in Vietnam who's like, okay, boys, you want to go and have a drink? Go ahead. Or, or if he's going to be playing Chick Donahue's father, who's like, man, you know, you don't, you wouldn't do well in Vietnam. You shouldn't go over there. You know, I, I don't know what the role is going to be. Um, but Vigo is very picky. I don't think that he really signs on to too much stuff and certainly not a lot of crap. Um, so I, it, it sounds, it seems to me like, I mean, Peter fairly, fairly could really do any, not maybe not anything he wants, but close to anything that he wants coming off of Green Book's Best Picture win and a couple of other Oscars. Um, and so the fact that he wanted to do this story, I think is interesting. I think it's a great story. And, and if they have the, the right script, like, you know, Del, Dylan O'Brien could really thrive here. Um, again, I don't think that he's playing a soldier. He's playing the non-soldier who goes to Vietnam. So it's going to be a fish out of water thing. He's got to find, he's got to link up with his boys in the jungle. So he, you know, he's going to land somewhere in the country and it's going to be a real journey to, uh, to find them. Um, we've also heard that Thomas and McKenzie is being eyed for the female lead. She is the excellent young actress from Jojo Rabbit. Uh, she's got what? She's about to shoot M. Night Shyamalan's new movie. So that could, that could play a part in things, depending on when this is going. I'd heard Greatest Beer Run was going to go in the fall. M. Night, that's an ensemble piece. It, it, he typically works pretty quickly. I don't know if that's going in the fall or even sooner. I mean, that may be like July, August. Um, and Thomas and Mackenzie, what else do they want her for? I've heard that they want her for, um, for Jennifer Kent's new movie, uh, the, the Frida, Alice and Frida, that one. But uh, again, nothing official on that front. But uh, yeah, big fan of, of Thomas and Mackenzie. I think she's really, really talented. And if you haven't seen her in the Kelly, the, the, the True History of the Kelly Gang, that, that's, a, that's a decent little indie movie. Um, 
thought John Mulaney taking the sack lunch bunch to Comedy Central was interesting just because, you know, they did, they made such a good Netflix comedy special. Like, John Mulaney is one of, like, the funniest fuckers out there right now. The sack lunch bunch was an interesting concept um, that I hadn't seen done in a long time. And it just took me back to, like, I don't know, my, my childhood in a sense. And so I'm surprised that Netflix didn't go just for more Mulaney in general. Like maybe they didn't want the sack lunch bunch. They just wanted John Mulaney standup specials. Uh, but, but I'm surprised they didn't stay in business with him. Maybe Comedy Central just like, you know, threw it back of the Brinks truck, threw a bunch of money at him. They're definitely like redoing their, their programming strategy and stuff. They, they just tapped uh, Charlemagne, Charlemagne the God to do a show over there. So, so Comedy Central trying to, you know, pivot and there's no better real person to, to start that pivot with than, uh, than John Mulaney and the sack lunch bunch. Uh, Ernie Klein, author Ernest Klein, announcing that Ready Player Two will be published in November. Excuse me. Some people hate Ready Player One. Like, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. They just think it's this obnoxious book. I thought it was like the like it's it may not be like high literature or anything, but I have low brow literature taste, low brow taste in books, and this thing just kept me turning the pages like it was the Da Vinci Code. Like I had an absolute blast reading Ready Player One. It was it's one of the more memorable reading experiences of my adult life. I came to it late, so it had already sort of been overhyped. I, I'm I didn't I'm not really a gamer, so to speak. Um, and yet I, I fully appreciated, you know, all the eighties movie references and everything. And maybe he takes some of the criticisms to heart and maybe he doubles down. I thought Spielberg's adaptation was successful. If not, you know, it may not have lived up to the book or even the trailer that Warner brothers expertly cut for it. Uh, but I'm excited for ready player two to read the book. And you know, if the book is as good as the first one, maybe they make a sequel. The first movie made over 500 million. And that's with, you know, Spielberg wanting all the toys and everything. So, you know, I, I doubt Spielberg would do a sequel, but maybe he could hand it off to one of these, you know, many protégés that he's developed. Uh, and maybe they won't, you know, need to drop $175, $180 million on a budget. So the movie doesn't, wouldn't necessarily need to gross $500 million. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that. I just bought a whole bunch of books on Amazon, they're coming today. I gotta go check check outside once I, I wrap this podcast. But I got some good stuff in there. Book on uh, Silk Road, a book on one of Whitey Bulger's mob enforcers. What else did I get? That Elisa Lamb story, the woman uh, who, who like they found her body in like a water tower. She disappeared in an elevator. Got some interesting stuff coming. Jim Carrey has a new book where he writes about a guy named Jim Carrey who is a movie star. Uh, so that seems very meta. And then I also got Charlie Kaufman's new book. I think it's called Ant Kind, and it's about a film critic. So even though I don't love, like, I love Charlie Kaufman when he's writing other people's movies. And I'm I'm pumped for, actually, his next directorial uh, effort, uh, the one with uh, Jesse Plemons and Jesse Buckley, I'm thinking of ending things. But, like, you know, Synecdoche, New York, and, and a couple of other Charlie Kaufman movies, I couldn't stand them. So I don't know if I'm going to hate this book and throw it across the room or if I'm just going to lap up, you know, every page. But I felt like respect had to be paid. This is Charlie Kaufman. He's a unique unique guy with a special voice. I need to buy this book. And so I did. I never feel bad about spending money on books. I, I could be broke 
And if I were to spend my last money on, uh, on my last pennies on books, I, I wouldn't have any regrets. So the one indulgence I allow myself. Um, couple, you know, a bunch of TV things and whatnot. Elizabeth Moss signing on to play Candy Montgomery in this true crime series from uh, Nick Antosca and Robin Veith. They did uh, the act. Robin Veith had worked with her before on, on Mad Men. This, like, I wasn't really familiar with this story. I did a little bit of research because I didn't want to spoil it too much, but it sounds like this Candy Montgomery woman, she, she was married, she had kids, a happy life, a, you know, a decent marriage, and yet, you know, she, she had this, there, there was this, she had a church friend and she resolved to sleep with this woman's uh, husband. She was like, I, I knew, she knew the exact moment when she decided she was going to have this affair. And then whether she was discovered or just wanted to, you know, run off with this other man, I don't know. But it sounds like she killed him with an axe. Uh, and it just surprises this, this small town. It, it sounds like a great role for Elizabeth Moss. And I'm very encouraged by the fact that Nick Antosk was working on it. I love the act. I thought that's one of the best uh, limited series the last couple of years. So, um, yeah, si sign me the hell up. Meanwhile, Matt Weiner has a new FX mystery dramedy series. It's a half hour thing, which is, it's, you know, a new, new thing for Matt Weiner. I didn't, I wasn't a madman guy. I couldn't really get into that show. Didn't bother with the Romanoffs. Didn't like his, his feature, You Are Here. So I'm not like a Matt Weiner guy, but I am a big FX guy. And I do trust their development process. I have a lot of faith and respect for John Landgraf over there. So if he thinks that this could be up, you know, the network's alley, uh, you know, I, I'm stoked for it. I also like mystery dramedies. I think the half hour format could be good for Matt Weiner. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what he comes up with. Um, they're doing a Black Wonder Years set in Alabama from, uh, I think it's uh, Saladin K. Patterson is the writer. Lee Daniels is going to be producing. They got Fred Savage back to, to, to produce. This one, I had a lot to say. I had a lot to say yesterday on the site about it. Um, and it's funny, you know, so, okay. Wonder Years is, to me, one of the top 10 te television shows of all time. It is part of the very fabric of my childhood, as I wrote. Uh, God, it is, it's an, it's just an incredible show. I mean, Fred Savage, one of the great child performances in all of TV history. Winnie Cooper. I mean, Kevin and Winnie, that was, that was what it was all about before, you know, Joey and Dawson and Pacey, of course. Like just one of the great young romances on TV. I love Paul Pfeiffer. I love Dan Loria as, uh, you know, uh, Kevin's dad, like Wayne. I was that Wayne older brother. Um, and it just, it tackled incredible, you know, like very mature themes towards day on television. It had a great soundtrack full of these late sixties, early seventies songs and the narration, like narration is a crutch in writing. And yet it was so perfectly done in the wonder years. Um, and so to remake it, I'm just like, no, that's like remaking The Godfather. You wouldn't want somebody to remake Breaking Bad or The Sopranos or something. So no, I, I on its face, I was like, absolutely not. No re remake for The Wonder Years. However, if you were going to remake it, if you insisted on remaking it, then you got to do something different. You got to mix it up. And that's why I was like, to do it with a black family set down south in Alabama, but keep the time period. So they're still living through Vietnam and, and MLK and all this stuff. And to get their perspective on all those events and, and the, the, the times that were changing back then, I think that's the way to do it. It's perfect. 
because it allows it allows there to be change and, and for this show to put its own stamp on things. And yet it stays true to the essence of the show by, by keeping the time period, not necessarily the setting. You know, you're not going to see the, the young lead on this series wearing a Jets jacket like, like Kevin Arnold did. But I, I maintain that this is the right move if, if you are insisting on doing the one year. So, you know, you know, I guess why couldn't you just make a show, you know, that's called the, uh, I don't know what the hell the title would be, but you could just do another show that's a lot like The Wonder Years, you know, Black Family in Alabama in the late 60s. Why does it need to be called The Wonder Years? Because that is just the, the culture we're living in these days. Everything needs to have that brand attached to it. Like, I don't know that the, the kids who would watch that show next year or in two years, they didn't grow up watching The Wonder Years. They, they barely know what it is. You know, maybe because it's on Hulu, they're familiar with it. But I remember back in the day, there, there, Wonder Years was not available. Uh, the reruns were on Nick at Night, and then when those went away, it was like I had to order bootleg DVDs on Facebook just to just to get my my Wonder Years fix. Um, but so it's like I tweeted, you know, I, I I tweeted from the the story from the Collider account saying, Wonder Years top ten TV show untouchable. But if ABC insists on remaking it, then the Black Family and, and the, the same time period is the way to go. I got responses that were like, what a myopic tweet. Which just reinforced, because guys, I am still checking the Twitters. I'm weaning myself off this thing. Number one was not posting. Number two will be not reading. But yeah, I, I read the responses to that uh, tweet and it was like, this is why I'm off Twitter. because. Here I am advocating, like, I really like the casting of a black family in the One Year's reboot. And no, now it's myopic, and, and I just, you, you cannot win. Which is going to bring me to, my, to our, my next story, and it's one I think we're probably going to revisit. Because I need to watch this Netflix documentary, Disclosure. You know, and, and it's all about, you know, uh, trans people, trans performers, that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, there was a story this week about Halle Berry. And you know, Halle Berry had said in the interview that she was looking forward to playing uh, a, a, a trans person. And the internet just came down on her. And uh, it's like, I get it. I get it. And I would, I'd love to be, you know, writing trans casting stories. I really would. However, it's a business and until we find a trans performer who can carry a 40 million dollar budget those stories are just not going to be told and so this whether it's you know rub and tug the scarlett johansson movie or this whatever this halle berry movie was and the reason i'm not you know i'm not getting even more animated because i don't know what this movie is i don't know what the role is i don't know what it's about you know, it was just like this theoretical development project, essentially. So I, I kind of have to reserve judgment until I know more. But this idea that, like, you know, only the people who are one thing or another can play one thing or another, I'm just, on principle, I'm not for it. Okay? It's not a good thing. An actor's job is to act. It is to put themselves in the shoes of someone who they are not. That is their gift. And so it's not about who gets to tell your story 
You know, like for all I know, a trans person wrote that script. Uh, I just think it's dangerous when you're saying only trans people can play trans characters because, well, then, again, the the point of of this business is to make money. And I I would hope one day that that audiences would come out and, and tens of millions of dollars worth of audiences would come out to support, you know, a movie, a TV show, whatever it is that has a, a, a trans lead. But until that day, we still need to tell trans stories. Like how many people saw something like Boys Don't Cry and maybe it helped them get in touch with this other side, this more masculine, more feminine side, whatever it is. And maybe it, you know, showed them a path to happiness and and maybe it encouraged them to become trans themselves. In this day and age, in this climate, Boys Don't Cry would not get made. And so this, these stories, Rub and Tug, and whatever this Halle Berry story was, it's not Halle Berry or a trans performer. It's Halle Berry or no one, unfortunately. Don't shoot the messenger, you know? I'm just telling you the way that the economics of the industry are set up. And so Rub and Tug, again, I'm not sure what the budget was. I imagine it was around 25 30 $40 million dollars you need someone who can justify that budget level. Now I go back to something like Tangerine, uh, which I think was, it was Maya Taylor and Kiki Rodriguez. I want to say, I love Tangerine. I thought both of them were excellent. And I don't think either one of them has really been in, in anything like certainly not any studio movies. So it's like, guys, the studios can give all the money that they want and they can release all the statements that they want. But until they actually cast trans performers, nothing is really going to change. And you're seeing more trans people on television for sure. But, you know, the, the financials of movies, if for some reason, unless you're shooting on an iPhone like Sean Baker was, it's just, it's, it's, it's not working. It, it doesn't work right now. Um, and, and again, that is an indictment of, of our culture and, and the arts at this moment. It's indictment of, of Hollywood, not giving people opportunities, but you have to understand that these opportunities, they are risks. And this is a risk averse town that is, is trying to, to, you know, say no for any reason. I don't know why my, my IMDb pro has stopped working here. I'm trying to uh, get into the Maya Taylor of it all. Yeah, Maya Taylor has a few credits after Tangerine, four short films, and then something called Myra, a $30,000 indie movie that she associate uh, produced, and then something called Stage Mother. And that's it. And she's at, uh, you know, Maya is at ICM. Yeah, that's a major agency. Let's let's, uh, check the co-star, Kiki Rodriguez, yes. Kiki Rodriguez, who I think, because I remember Maya Taylor getting all like the the plaudits, I think for um, for Tangerine, and, and yet I think I remember liking Kiki even more. Kiki hasn't done anything since Tangerine, and I'm sure that's not for a lack of trying, you know. So, so that's the industry not getting Kiki roles, and it's bullshit. But at the same time, I wouldn't just expect, you know. Uh, some indie financiers 
to gamble $40 million to cast Kiki in a movie. You know, like, like it, it's, it's just, you know, all these people on Twitter who, who are talking about this kind of stuff, it's like, well, put yourself in the executives or the producer's shoes. I just, I don't know. Again, I, I hesitated to even bring this up this week. And I don't want it to come across, like, I, I think that you know, I don't think I've gone off on anybody like I did uh, on, you know, on J.K. Rowling a few weeks ago. Like, I have the trans communities back, 100%. But I also didn't sit there watching Philadelphia thinking this movie would be so much better if Tom Hanks actually had AIDS. I didn't sit there watching Brokeback Mountain thinking this would be so much better if Jake Gyllenhaal sucked a few dicks. Like, I just... It's not how I'm thinking of art. You know, Tom Hanks, Jake Gyllenhaal, those are two of the best performances I think I've ever seen. So while I get the need for greater inclusivity and and representation, and I think that that movement is wonderful, I have to, you know, like that, that's me as a, as a blogger. Reporter Jeff has to explain to you why it does or doesn't make sense that Hollywood is or isn't doing something. You know? Uh, I, I just think Hollywood needs, needs to be allowed to tell some trans stories in the first place. You know? It, it, because the, the sooner we all comes to grips with that, I mean, the, the, the better everything's going to be. Like every studio right now is in a financial pinch already due to the pandemic. And it is obviously going to result in them taking fewer risks. So I think that we need to cut producers some slack. Like I'm, I'm with you guys that enough is enough in terms of these kinds of casting things. But on the other hand, is, is there ever enough, you know? Anyways, we're going to have more on that. I want to watch Disclosure. I want to come back with a review in the next couple of weeks uh, on, on that movie, and maybe it'll change my perspective. And, and But, I, again, I just really feel like we can't just bury trans stories. we got to tell these stories, but we also have to be, you know, you have to tell one so that the second one can get made. You know, the first one has to be a success for the next one to get made. And if we want to have successes, unfortunately right now it means casting people like Halle Berry who can put butts in seats or Scarlett Johansson. That's all. Um, do, 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 do. All right. We're about, we're about halfway through the show. And again, I don't really have any mailbag questions because I didn't put out a call for them. So we got a little bit of time uh, towards the end of things. There was this movie Borderland. Speaking you know, speak of racial controversies, this movie Borderland, John Boyega announced um, Jack Rayner, Felicity Jones. It's her husband uh, d- directing it. And, um, and Jodie Turner-Smith, who was fantastic in, in Queen and Slim. I tried to get Jodie Turner-Smith as our up-and-comer of the month, uh, the month that Queen and Slim came out, and it just didn't work out. So I'm, I'm very much behind her, and, and I'm excited to see her in After Yang, Poganada's A24 movie with Colin Farrell. Anyways, Borderland is about this white, this Irish soldier whose what, pregnant wife is killed by an SAS sergeant played by, played by John Boyega. And so, you know, the first reaction I hear from people is just, ooh, I don't know if you want to make a movie about a white guy hunting down a black guy in this climate. And it's just like, is that all we're going to see now is just race? Is that, the, is that the first thing? 
Like, if this was about a black guy hunting down a white guy, is it is it that much better? I just um, like the the story. It's not even about a white guy, a white guy hunting a black guy, as far as I can tell. That's not what it's about. It's about one guy hunting another guy. The good guy, the bad guy. The bad guy did something. We want to see him punished. It just so happens to be a black guy. So be it. Like, this, isn't this what we want? We just want, you know, the black uh, movies where the black people plays the hero and, and, and kills the white guy at the end. Like, <clears throat> black people should be allowed to play everything, including villains. And so, originally, there were two white guys in this movie. It was Jamie Dornan and Sam Claflin. So this isn't about a, a, a white-on-black thing. I think it's a, a really a, an example of colorblind casting. That, hey, we've got two white guys. Now they've fallen out of the project. Let's get another white guy in there for Jack Rayner. And then who should the other white guy be? Wait a second, why does it need to be a white guy? John Boyega is a really good actor. He's available. He's got a lot of goodwill after uh, doing all the Black Lives Matter protests. Like, he's a recognizable face around the world thanks to Star Wars. If we can get him, why, why wouldn't we go after him? So I feel like this is a win in terms of racial stuff rather than a step back because the black guy is going to be hunted by the white guy. I, I just, I, I don't understand that first instinct to look for the controversy, you know? that That's just me. Speaking of controversy, <laughs> I don't know how much to say about this because I still haven't made a decision, but... um. I filed uh, my review of Outcry this week, uh, and it did not go up on Collider. They had um, the editors had some issues with it, and they were they're entitled to those issues, and and so they didn't want to publish the piece uh, as it was. They asked me to make some changes. I declined to make some of those changes, um, and thought about putting the whole thing up on my blog. The problem is that my blog not nearly as popular as Collider, and what is the point of a review but to turn people on to, to good stuff. So I'm really torn between, do I publish this review in full that I stand by on my own blog where maybe five people will read it, or do I make some edits and, and try to address some notes that I didn't necessarily agree with, but it is for the good of our, our readership at Collider and, and for the good of the people who made the series who deserve to have their work seen. Um, so I, I got to still think on that. I don't want to you know, start quoting the review or, or put it up on my blog because, you know, then the toothpaste is out of the tube. So the series, I think, airs for five weeks. I'm going to make a decision this weekend. But I just want to say that Outcry, I gave it an A. Outcry is is a terrific, terrific story um, from, from Pat Condalise, an Emmy-winning filmmaker. It's about a, the Greg Kelly, this Texas high school football star who's accused of molesting a four-year-old boy and it's very hard. It's very, it's a, it's a tricky case. Uh, a lot of nuance. Nuance doesn't go over well on, on Twitter. Maybe I need to be a better critic in, in order to uh, discuss it, you know, the right way. I just think um, it's very tough to, to, to take an 18-year-old guy and throw him in jail for the rest of his life and brand him as a sex offender based solely on the word of a four-year-old uh, little boy who, who, again, I'm not doubting his claims i i think that something terrible happened to this little boy i think that he was the victim of abuse but did he identify the right person did, did he even identify anybody i mean he he said a name but 
from what I understand, there was no police lineup. He was never asked to identify a photograph. This guy, Greg Kelly, looked very similar to, to someone else. Um, and again, if I walked up to a four-year-old right now and said, hey, kid, my name's Santa Claus, he'd call me Santa Claus, you know? He, he wouldn't necessarily know what my real name is or whatever. So it, it's not a, uh, you know, I think that facts need to be considered. And, and to me, the, the police investigation was, was very lazy. They just wanted, you know, name a suspect, uh, give, give this, this poor family uh, their peace of mind. But that's not really how justice works. And this is a fascinating exploration of the justice system. So I hope that you will check out Outcry on Showtime on Sunday nights uh, and while I decide what the hell to do with my review. Other TV news, Stargirl got renewed for season two. It's moving to the CW, guys. RIP DC Universe. This thing is done. It's dead. People use it for, I guess, the, the comics. Uh, I, I think that the comic archive is is a big part of uh, why they're still keeping that thing alive. But all the shows, get rid of them. Put them on HBO Max. What are, you, what are you doing? How many streaming services can we have? How many do you expect these people to pay for? Uh, dead to Me, renewed for season three. I've heard this show is is really good. I haven't seen it doesn't really strike me as up my alley but i do love linda cardellini so that, that's a tricky one for me a batman forever director's cut may be may exist i mean according to mark bernard bernardin uh he, he claims to, to know that a 170 minute cut exists guys let me just tell you something every movie you've ever seen all of your favorite movies there's director's cuts for all of them Can you believe it? The movie that you saw was edited from something else. Here's the thing. I don't need to see all these fucking director's cuts of X, Y, and Z. In fact, the only director's cut I've ever really liked was Natural Born Killers from Oliver Stone. Um, We trust these filmmakers to make cuts, to make decisions. Like, that is filmmaking. So coming 10, 15, 20 years later and dropping, no, here's the real version of the movie, I just... I know that the, the theatrical cut is, will not stop existing. That's what they always argue. And everyone, want, you know, they're completists. They want to see every last scene that Joel Schumacher shot. It's like, that is not, that's not a movie. I don't want to see director's cuts of books either. With all the, the unnecessary words and sentences and chapters that uh, an author cut out the first time around. Like, I just, I don't get it. And particularly for a movie like Batman Forever. Like, really? We need, we need a fucking director's cut of that to see how fucking Two-Face broke out of Arkham Asylum. Like, what? I don't get it. You know, well, why can we not respect the filmmaker's vision? Why? Oh, because it wasn't the filmmaker's vision. This is his director's cut. All right, but the filmmaker signed up to work with the studio. Like, I just, I don't know, man. I'm just not a fan of this growing trend. Um, Colin Kaepernick signed a first look deal with Disney. Sure, he's, you know, one of the most popular people in America. I'd say there's actually plenty of Colin Kaepernick haters, but uh, I don't think that's really the audience Disney is courting. So it's smart of them to get into business with him, uh, I think. So so they're doing a, a scripted show, right, about his younger years, and now there's going to be a documentary about his actual uh, life as an adult, um, which would be good because, you know, Colin, Colin's been off camera the last few years. He's been out of the NFL I'd love to see him get another shot with with another team. Um, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. So we may have to settle for Colin Kaepernick, uh, Hollywood mogul. 
There's no Oscars coming for Hamilton, the movie that everybody seemed to watch on Disney Plus over the weekend. I haven't had a chance to check it out. I definitely want to soon. I saw Hamilton on stage, 300 bucks a pop, no less. And that was way back there, and it wasn't the original cast. So to have a front row seat with the original cast for six bucks, sign me up. Uh, I, I am you know, excited to, to see that, but we won't be seeing it at the Oscars because I guess you know, recorded stage productions are not eligible. There's some arcane rule, although I've also heard that the rule applies to the documentary film category so that you couldn't call Hamilton a documentary. But it is, it's not just, you know, the, the stage performance recorded. It's three different, uh, I think, stage performances recorded. And so it's, it's edited together. And, and you know, they, they, they use the best performance. They, you know, this take was better than this. This song, you know, Lin-Manuel sung this song better on Tuesday night, better than he did Thursday night. So we're going to use that take. Like, to me, that's a movie. And I, I think I saw, I think it was Richard Newby on, on Twitter who I saw, uh, asking, or maybe it was Facebook, I forget what it was, but he was asking, you know, is this going to go on your, you know, movies of the year list? And I think it is. It should. It qualifies to me as a movie. If I could not see what I'm watching three years ago or five years ago, whenever it was recorded, then this is a new movie that that uh, deserves its own, you know, star rating. It could be different from the star rating I gave the LA version of the play. Uh, I mean, everything's different, I feel like. So, yeah, it, it, it totally, totally counts. Um, that said, I, I will not miss it at the Oscars, and I'm glad it's not eligible for anything because it's won enough fucking awards. It doesn't need to add Oscars to its belt because there's a, bu- a bunch of diehard super fans, uh, of, of Hamilton super fans out there. Um, the, advent- the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina canceled. What a shocker. Oh, my goodness. Everybody is just... Hmm, sad violin. Um, Kate Shortland, the Black Widow director, uh, confirmed that they're going to be passing the baton to Florence Pugh. I mean, I think that much was, was obvious. You weren't going to get Black Widow 2 and 3 starring fucking Scarlett Johansson. Um, you know, who sacrificed herself in, in Endgame. This is a, a prequel. Uh, uh, and what are you going to do? Keep making prequels? That doesn't make sense. So, uh, Florence Pugh... Definitely a, a big star on the rise, a, a smart play by, by Marvel. What else? What else? What else? The Nolan stuff I thought was interesting with Mulan. Like there was this, I want to say it was Hollywood Reporter. I did this big story about how Warner Brothers wanted to really delay Tenet. I guess this should go under Tenet Watch. So Tenet Watch. Warner Brothers reportedly was really pushing for a, a major delay of Tenet because to move it every two weeks, you're just losing like marketing dollars. I know that they're spending less marketing dollars because there's no live sports to advertise against. And, that, and those are the, you know, the expensive events. Um, so, so they're spending less on marketing, but again, if you have to keep fucking marketing a, a new opening every two weeks, it's going to add up. So Warner Brothers wanted to push it significantly and i wouldn't be shocked if they really wanted to push it to next summer um hold on i i've got to bring this up so everybody picks this up right and then no one was like no no no. he wants to be the savior of, of theaters he wants to you know theaters to reopen he wants to be first i don't know who in their right mind would want to be the first big movie back in theaters 
during this pandemic. Like, that is crazy. And it seemed like his people didn't even deny that element of it. They were like, yes, Chris Owen wants to be the first movie. Wild. Um, so, anyways, days later, or at least a day later, I'm reading the playlist. I click on their Chris Nolan story, and they tell me that the original Hollywood Reporter story was updated. No mention of an update, and it like listen to this update from the playlist. The original Hollywood Reporter article has been updated and amended with significant parts removed, fundamentally altering the discussion between WB and Nolan. Originally, the report claimed that Nolan was given the option of delaying Tenet by months. That has been changed to weeks, changing the entire basis for the Blow article. The changes are reflected throughout. So, I mean, Hollywood Reporter, if you're going to fucking update a story like that, at least just note it at the top. And, I mean, weeks and months, there is a big difference there. Um, I'll tell you, though, you can tell. Nolan is freaking out about the PR and this stuff, like freaking out. I've heard from, and, and listen, you know, Nolan and I have obviously had our own shit. Uh, I, I got let go from Variety shortly after, coincidence, um, tweeting that I was going to, I, I, I got scooped on a Chris Nolan story that I felt his team was responsible for. And I tweeted, my blood will be, I'm going to go wrap my car around a tree and my blood will be on Hollywood's hands. Apparently it got back to Chris Nolan because he reads everything. Calls were made. I was let go. Was it a morbid joke to make? Yeah, it was. Probably ill-advised. Wouldn't do it again. Can't do it again because I'm not on Twitter. But the point is, Chris Nolan's publicist and I, Kelly Bush Novak, lover, we go way back. I have heard stories of her calling lots of bloggers over the last few weeks to correct every little thing under the sun, especially that chairs thing, the no chairs. Oh my, it seemed like she personally reached out to every outlet that ran, that was dumb enough to run with it. Cause I, if I ran my own site, never in a million years would I have picked that story up. It's stupid. Ugh, but yeah, the Nolan PR machine is working overtime. Overtime. Um, so a few other things. Don't worry, we're not done here. Uh, I want to point you to David Kep's website, which is a veritable treasure trove of the process of screenwriting. I couldn't believe some of the stuff he's allowed to post on there. You know, uh, multiple drafts of scripts, so you can see the revisions and the changes that are made. He did a, the, he put up the whole pitch for Panic Room. He's got an unproduced Spider-Man script up there. He's got a lot of stuff, and even though. Excuse me. I didn't love David Kemp's, uh, you know, new newest movie, You Should Have Left with Kevin Bacon. There is no doubt he is one of Hollywood's uh, best, most experienced screenwriters. And I would, yeah, definitely go over to his website and check it out, especially if, if you are a writer, a wannabe writer, just a fan of screenwriting in general. Uh, I'm definitely planning to, pl- to play around with his archives for a bit. I'm also curious about the Jeffrey Rush podcast, uh, Jeffrey Rush Trial by Media that Inc. did. It's all about, uh, you know, the, the, the sexual assault allegations or harassment allegations or, uh, surrounding Jeffrey Rush and, and, you know, how he fought back against them and thought they were just complete bullshit. And, again, I'm not, that's not a case that I'm terribly familiar with. Like, I remember it at the time, but I don't know really who made the complaints or what the circumstances uh, were. 
but he is a guy who's really been adamant about his his innocence uh and i don't know it's like you haven't seen a lot of um podcasts or, or things like delve into that kind of he said she said or at least around you know these kinds of celebrity cases so the fact that this is one of the first is intriguing Um, right, real, real quick with that uh, Hamilton thing, I felt like there wasn't an, a loophole in the language um, regarding you know some of the the Oscar rules, and so I just feel like you know if, there, if there's one thing Disney knows how to do, it's interpret the rules and interpret they shall on on this Hamilton thing. I don't know if we've heard the last of it. Um. Class Action Park, there's a documentary coming out. Of, uh, you remember that Johnny Knoxville movie, Action Park, or, or something like that? I think that's what it was called. That was based on a real place. There's a book coming out about that place now. Now there's an HBO documentary, HBO Max documentary in the works. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to this. Uh, God. This, all right. Uh, we saw this trailer for this um, documentary, Skin, all about the history of nudity in Hollywood. That seems fascinating. Because obviously, like in the late 60s, early, you know, early 70s, things just opened up. Uh, you got Midnight Cowboy, which was X-rated, winning Best Picture. Uh, all, the, all of a sudden, all these stars who, you know, are, are never going to look so good are taking their clothes off on camera. And then you have people being pressured into taking their clothes off. You have all these sex comedies like Porky's and stuff like that, horror movies that are trading on TNA. Like, that's the whole point is just to, to see some tits and ass uh, you know, on a Friday night in a horror movie or, or some raunchy comedy. And think, you know, that has obviously changed. You know, you don't see a lot of nudity in movies uh, right now. America has always been, at least as long as I've been alive, one of, you know, a, a pruder country. We're, we're prude when it comes to sex, and yet we love gratuitous violence. So this documentary sounds super interesting to me. I mean, there were, and it's not just like female nudity. I remember... Even like Scream, which is one of my favorite movies, the line in Scream from Tatum, where she's like, hey, you know, if you pause all the right moves just right, you can see Tom Cruise's penis and see Bruce Willis's penis in Color of Night. I used, I, I, I used to have that on VHS and, you know, the tape was all fucked up around the sex, tape, uh, sex scene part with Bruce Willis and Jane March because I would just watch it over and over. Um, I, think, I think it's healthy for young people to, to look to Hollywood to, for for instruction on, on sex, on kissing, on sexuality, whatever it is. I learned how to, just as I learned how to run watching Tom Cruise in movies, I learned how to kiss watching, you know, Hollywood actors in, in movies. Uh, so, you know, I, I, that seems like an, in, an interesting subject to explore on the big screen. Um, some superhero stuff, Javicia Leslie or Javisha Leslie, forgive me if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, uh, she's been cast as Batwoman, replacing Ruby Rose on the CW show. <clears throat> I'm not terribly familiar with her work. Apparently she was on God Friended Me. I don't watch uh, Batwoman either. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't watch uh, Batwoman either. But... I think that she's a good choice. She definitely has a certain look. She's got uh, this young, hip look. Um, a black Batwoman, I can get behind that. I dig it. Uh, again, it's just a way to, it's a new character. It's a way to distinguish the, the old version of the show from this new version. Um, 
I, w- I wish Miss Leslie the, the best of luck. Uh, and Janelle Monet wants to play Storm in the MCU. She wants to get into the, the new X-Men movies that will inevitably be made once Kevin Feige uh, is able to get up and running on things. Um, Janelle Monet would be great as Storm. I can totally see that. I don't know about a, a standalone movie. Let's see how Antebellum performs first. Uh, and I am looking forward to that one. I'm trying to picture Janelle Monet on, on a press tour for an X-Men movie, and I, I can't. She's, she seems a little too classy um, to be answering storm questions uh, from, from fanboys. But, uh, yeah, I, I can see her with the, with the streak in her hair. I'm sure that, that Janelle Monet would be very, very good. Um, all right, some big movie stuff. That's right. almost forgot about that. Lee Winnell. We're only a few minutes left in the episode. I can't believe I didn't lead with this. Lee Winnell is going to do the Wolfman movie starring Ryan Gosling. Now, this is one that we'd heard that uh, Thoroughbreds director Corey Finley was being eyed for. Then I'd said, wouldn't it be great if Drew Goddard came in and did the Wolfman movie? But now it's going to be Lee Whannell. He's a safe choice for Universal and Blumhouse, which is also coming on to produce this. Lee Whannell just did uh, Invisible Man. I don't know why Lee Whannell would personally want to, like, he's got a zillion projects in development around town, including an Escape from New York reboot. I don't know why he would want to tackle this Wolfman thing. It's like, you just did Invisible Man. What are you just going to do? All the monsters? Maybe give somebody else a turn. But from the studio's perspective, I totally understand why why they hired him. He did a great job on Invisible Man, and that gets you more jobs. Um, I do love how Blumhouse is coming on now. One week after Blumhouse told, what was it, Screen Rant or something? That they're like, or Den of Geek, or I don't know who it was. So he was like, no, no idea about that project. No idea. Even though his wife wrote it. What's weird about this report, though, is that it said that Lee Winnell is going to be writing a treatment and... Blum's wife uh, and, and Rebecca Angela are still going to be writing the script. So did they not write the script? What happened to the whole, uh, you know, Wolfman meets network idea of like a, an anchorman? Like, did they throw that out? Was that Lee Winnell's idea? I don't fucking understand what is going on with the writing of that movie. Uh, so was Lee like, all right, yeah, I'll do it. But I have my own idea how to do it. So here's my idea. This is the one we're going to do. Now, you know, have the writers throw their script out and go write my idea. I'm just very confused how all that went down, considering how long I know Blum's wife and Rebecca Angela to have, uh, Lauren Sugar Blum and Rebecca Angela to have been writing a script. Speaking of Blumhouse, everything's delayed. Halloween, delayed. Halloween ends. Halloween kills is delayed. Halloween ends is delayed. It's all delayed. Um, Halloween Kills was supposed to come out this October. It's now moving to next October, taking the place of Halloween Ends. Halloween Ends moves to 2022. And we have Candyman moving from September to October, now taking the place. The good thing uh, about this is that uh, Halloween Kills is now going to be getting an IMAX release. They, they you know, got, managed to get the, the big screens for this. They also uh, released a little teaser that just continues... You know, from the end of uh, Halloween, we saw all three generations of Strode women riding away from the burning house. But as they're riding away, they see the fire trucks now. And it seems like someone is going to come put out that fire, potentially save Michael Myers. Uh, Listen, I really liked what David Gordon Green did with Halloween. I can't wait for the sequels. This is the franchise that that Blumhouse has really gotten right, even though the rest of their movies this year have been pretty bad, with the exception of Invisible Man, best uh, scripted film I've seen this year. Um, But they've got like three movies in in my top ten worst movies of the year. Um, But I'm looking forward to to Halloween. I'm looking forward to Candyman. 
Bring it on. A uh, few just odds and ends here. Um, I think it was Adam Chitwood who ranked our, our top Tom Cruise movies. He went with Top Gun at number one. I was never a big Top Gun movie. I understand why Adam went with that one. It's an iconic movie. Uh, wouldn't have been my choice, but that's why it's his list. Matt Goldberg ranked Guillermo del Toro's top movies, put Pan's Labyrinth at number one. Great choice. Uh, I don't know what else it could possibly be. Pan's Labyrinth is definitely Guillermo's best movie. Uh, I mean, Shape of Water was very good, but it's it's no Pan's Labyrinth, even though it did win Best Picture. Um, I rewatched The Office. I finished last night. My, my, it took a couple months to, I think it was really two or three months to rewatch all of The Office, nine seasons. What a great show, really. Just, they had like the, the, the penultimate episode where John, uh, Jim, John Krasinski, you know, makes that DVD for Pam. Uh, it, it had me crying. Like, I just love these characters. I think my favorites uh, in this, during this rewatch were um, Oscar and Kevin. Love what those guys, uh, you know, br- brought to that office. And uh, Clyder had a really good story about the, the the wig that Jim wears in season three and why he wore it. It's all about leatherheads. So find that story on Collider. That's a good one. Um, I want to congratulate Wilson Morales. The, the longtime editor of Black Film has left that site to launch his own site, blackfilmandtv.com. And you just got to forgive me here because I got I to gotta do a little love letter to Wilson. I think this is a very – Wilson's a – I don't know him that well. But every time I see him, he's working his ass off. He's a very smart guy. And it's like you have all these companies patting themselves on the back for, for diversity. How come no one has hired Wilson Morales to run, like, their site? He'd be, like, a great managing editor or editor and she Like, he should be someone who the trades are going after. If I was running a trade – that's the kind of person that would be throwing $100,000 a year at, okay? The trades think that they can just hire anybody and train them to be a star reporter. But they haven't really produced a single one in a long time. I mean, um, I, I love me Ed Hollywood Reporter. Uh, I really like uh, Trey Williams at, at, at The Wrap, who just got his first LA Press Club nomination. But, like, they're very – they come along every few years. Uh, you know, young star reporters in this town. Um, and that, that's why I think Deadline was hot, was smart to hire Justin Kroll. Um, cause you know, there's only so many people who have these kinds of sources and can break news consistently. Like we don't just grow on trees. Um, and, and Wilson, I think is a very plugged in guy. So, you know, he may not have, have gotten hired by one of these giant publications, but I'm thrilled that he's starting his own. Uh, and, and I plan to, to visit that site as soon as it launches blackfilmandtv.com. Check it out uh, because I, I, I foresee good things uh, for that site. Um, the Outpost is doing really well on BOD. Still, a lot of you're definitely seeing some Oscar talk for Caleb Landry Jones. Keep an eye on that one. The Old Guard hits uh, Netflix tomorrow, I think. Yeah, on Friday. I'm working on a top 10 Charlize Theron movies list. I've got Monster at number one over Fury Road, guys. The Oscar, the Oscar talks, you know. Um, and then, uh, some sad news, Naya Rivera still missing. Apparently she was out, uh, boating, uh, with her, with her four-year-old son and she went for a swim and never came back. They found her, her son all alone on a boat. Uh, authorities have yet to, you know, find her or recover a body. Uh, I, you know, my thoughts and prayers are, are with her friends and family and that little boy, of course. Um, I think that'll do it. I did finish Perry Mason this week. It, you know, I, I did not care for that first episode, 
It was boring. My dad was like, forget it. I don't want to watch anymore. But I stuck with it. I soldiered on. And Perry Mason, believe it or not, it's basically True Detective season four. It is the fourth season of True Detective that just never got announced. Um, so check that out. Check out Black as Fuck. I wrote the blurb uh, for that as part of our t- uh, best Netflix shows of 2020. I think Black as Fuck from, from Kenya Barris is definitely on that list. And then a whole bunch of trailers this week. An American Pickle from uh, with Seth Rogen looks, you know, look, looks good. Looks like uh, it, it'll at least break up the, the boredom of the summer, given the lack of uh, movies. Die Hard, the Kevin Hart, John Travolta series on Quibi. Looks like it could be fun. Could get me to resubscribe. I like the indie trailers for I Used to Go Here and She Dies Tomorrow. Uh, there was a trailer for the one and only Ivan. You can totally see why that thing got dumped on Disney+. Plus. Um, and then Luca Guadagnino had a little uh, teaser for his We Are Who We Are. I think that's an HBO series. It's going to star Jack Dylan Brazer from It and Shazam. Uh, looking, looking, it reminded me of Call Me By Your Name. He just has a, a young Timothy Chalamet vibe about him. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that show. That'll do it. That'll do it for the Snyder Cut. We've got to wrap up here. That's my time. Uh, make sure, again, guys, follow the blog theinsnyder.blogspot.com. I did a little instant Insnyder reaction to, to Perry Mason as soon as I finished the show. You know, so rather than tweeting, you, you will occasionally see some instant uh, reviews on theinsnyder.blogspot.com where you can also keep up with the 2020 movie list. I'm coming up on 100 movies seen this year, 100 new movies. So if you're ever in need of a recommendation, you want to know, is this movie good? Is it overrated? Does it suck? Whatever. Go to that list. It is going to be super handy for you bookmark it i promise you can still find all my articles on collider.com check out uh, twitter you can see in the pinned tweet my byline make sure on thursdays dm email even reply to that tweet uh you know to get in your mailbag questions you can still find me on cameo instagram at at the insider buy a cameo we'll have our own little private conversation you and i that's it the snyder cut Wishes you a wonderful weekend. I will be back here next Thursday. Take care, guys. Need an extra hand with dinner? Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot, and Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology will fill it with the perfect amount of water. Visit deltafaucet.com slash voice IQ to discover more. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.